I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with public figures and leading authors. Today, I'm interviewing former Secretary of State James Baker as the final program in a conference organized by Baylor Law School entitled The Lawyer as Leader. We did the interview from Leon Jaworski's office at the Baylor Law Library on October 13, 2020. Enjoy. Good afternoon. I'm the Dean of Baylor Law School. My name is Brad Tobin, and it's my delight to welcome you today to a virtual front row seat as our good friend Talmadge Boston interviews former Secretary of State James Baker III. Mr. Baker, of course, it was a powerhouse of presidential leadership and politics over the course of several decades. He served under the administrations of four United States presidents. Secretary Baker was going to be the capstone speaker for our Baylor Law 2020 Vision for Leadership Conference, which unfolded last month, September 14th to 17th. The secretary was scheduled to speak, in fact, on September 17th, uh, Constitution Day, which would have marked the 233rd uh, anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Unfortunately, COVID-19 intervened. Uh, Secretary Baker and Mrs. Baker both became ill with the coronavirus. I'm happy, though, to report that the uh, illness is now in their rearview mirror, and we have the pleasure today of having uh, Talmadge Boston sit down with Secretary Baker to review a remarkable career in the public square. Talmadge Boston himself, uh, a go-to lawyer, uh, perennially uh, referred to as a super lawyer. Uh, Talmadge is a history buff. Uh, he is a prolific author. He has authored a book uh, in which he sat down with presidential historians and looked at the qualities of leadership as demonstrated by various United States presidents. I'm also delighted today uh, to note that this capstone appearance by Secretary Baker marks our sixth Star Federalist Papers Lecture Series, an endowed lecture series endowed by John and Marie Childs of Dallas in honor of Judge Starr. The purpose of the Stars, excuse me, the purpose of the Childses in honoring Judge Starr with the establishment of this endowed series was to draw attention and to showcase the importance of the Federalist Papers authored by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay following the signing of the Constitution. The Federalist Papers were widely discussed and published as a means of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay uh, showing those within this young burgeoning republic how the government would work under the new constitution. Hamilton and Jay, of course, were lawyers. Hamilton, the first secretary of the treasury. John Jay, the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. And Madison, although not a lawyer, was learned in the law and, of course, served as the fourth president of the United States. The papers were written from 1787 to 1789 when, of course, the Constitution was ratified. 
the work of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay in authoring the Federalist Papers, and then, of course, uh, so to say, going on the road uh, to convince those uh, living within what was the Confederacy that the Constitution would form a strong and lasting government was a remarkable example of leadership. And today, of course, we will be exploring with uh, uh, Secretary Baker this concept of lawyers as leaders, just as we did last month during the Baylor Law 2020 Vision for Leadership Conference. And with that, Talmadge, I will turn it over to you and to Secretary Baker. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Dean Tobin. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book published by the State Bar called Raising the Bar, the Crucial Role of the Lawyer in Society. And one of the chapters uh, identified as the two most important lawyers of the last 50 years. I picked Leon Jaworski on the litigation side, and I happen to be sitting in the exact replica of Leon Jaworski's law office here at the Baylor Law Library. And the other most important lawyer of the last 50 years was our special guest, uh, Secretary James Baker. So, Secretary Baker, uh, we're delighted you're here. Nobody epitomizes the concept of the lawyer leader more than you uh, to refresh people's memories. Uh, Secretary Baker was a leader of his law firm uh, for almost 20 years in Houston, the Andrews and Kurth firm. Then he went to Washington, uh, became uh, number two at the Department of Commerce and ultimately uh, and essentially led the Department of Commerce. He was the leader of five different uh, presidential campaigns. Uh, during Reagan's first term, he was the leader of the White House staff as the White House chief of staff. During his second term, he was the leader of the Treasury Department as the Secretary of the Treasury. And of course, during George H.W. Bush's presidency, he was the leader of the State Department as Secretary of State. Uh, in the year 2000, he became the leader of, of George W. Bush's legal team that prevailed in the landmark case of Bush versus Gore. So we simply could not have a better lawyer leader uh, to be part of this program than Secretary Baker. So Secretary Baker, thank you for taking time and, and being with us today as the, the, the final mark of this very important conference. Thank you, Talmadge. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, uh, since you've been a leader in so many different arenas and we're going to be talking about the lawyer as leader, uh, I think a logical place to start the conversation is how do you define the word leadership, Secretary Baker? Well, you know, uh, I think it was the uh, great historian James McGregor Burns who said that leadership is a commitment to values and the perseverance to fight for those values. I think that's a pretty good description of leadership. Uh, the, the toughest part of that formula is the uh, commitment to, to fight for those values and getting it done. Uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., even back in the days when I was there, <clears throat> it's easy to kill deals it's hard to make to get deals done. It's hard to make deals. And the really difficult part of leadership, in my view, is the doing. The knowing is really important, but it's not as tough as the doing. Now, in order to do, uh, obviously, uh, a lawyer leader has got to be able to persuade. And uh, the art of communication, both uh, oral and written communication, in my mind, is an essential trait for the lawyer leader. 
So what do you view as the key when you think about different lawyer leaders you've known as well as your own life? Uh, what's the key to best practices in communication? Well, I think if you want to lead others, you have to start out by uh, making sure that those others have faith in your word. So truthfulness, I think, is extraordinarily important. I also think it's important to be consistent. It's pretty hard to be a leader when, you're, when your uh, views change from time to time during the very time you're trying to lead others. I mean, you need to be consistent. Uh, one of the things that I uh, used to argue for and still think is critical in terms of a White House or a presidential campaign is message discipline. You have to be consistent. You have to be truthful. If you're, if you're not either one, either one of those, people are not going to follow you. Now, besides being an effective communicator, uh, another essential trait for the great lawyer leader is to be able to resolve disagreements and conflicts. Uh, and typically, you do that through effective negotiation. Now, Secretary Baker, in your legal and political and public service careers, uh, you've always been recognized as one of the world's great negotiators. So if you were going to write a book on the art of negotiation, what would be the theme in its first chapter? Well, I think if you expect to be successful as a negotiator, uh, first of all, you need to understand no negotiation can be a zero-sum game. I mean, it, to be a successful negotiator, you're going to have to make sure that you conduct the negotiation in a way where the other guy leaves the table uh, thinking that he's at least achieved something. So the number one thing, I think, for a successful negotiation is to begin by putting yourself in your interlocutor's shoes you, so you understand what his, his or her red lines are, what, they, what she or he can reasonably be expected uh, to agree to. And once you do that, I think you increase the chances of a successful negotiation. Again, I would go back to trustworthiness. You, you need to make sure if you're going to be a successful negotiator, that the person across the table uh, has faith in your word, that, uh, that 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 person doesn't think you're going to be lying to them or or fudging around the margins. And so, it's very important that your word be seen to be good if you're going to successfully negotiate with someone. Now, when we think about walking in somebody else's shoes, the word that comes to mind to me, at least, is the word empathy. Uh, in terms right. of uh, understanding kind of where the other person is who comes to the table who you're trying to take a, a, a make a deal with. Right. Think, can you think of a specific instance where having a, a high level of empathy for a counterpart made a big difference in American foreign policy? Well, yeah, there are probably, probably a lot of them. The, the most prominent one that comes to my mind is in... After the Berlin Wall fell, 
we knew, we, President George Bush and I knew, as his Secretary of State knew, that we had a lot of business still to do with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was President of the Soviet Union at the time, and his Foreign Minister, Edward Shevardnadze. So we didn't rub their noses in it. I mean, we were very restrained to the point that uh, President Bush was criticized roundly for not showing more emotion at the fall of the wall. After all, we had been in the Cold War uh, situation with the Soviets for over 40 years. Uh, the war had ended. We had won. Why weren't we celebrating? Well, we weren't celebrating because we didn't want to stick it in their eye since we had a lot more uh, a, lot, a lot more things we needed to get done. And I think that would be one good example. So after you've walked in your adversary or your counterpart's uh, shoes and empathized and uh, before you get to the table, then you get to the table and it's time to start the actual horse trading, as we right. say in Texas. Uh, so what do you think in order to be able to strike a deal? You talked a, a minute ago about uh, not viewing it as a zero sum game. Uh, you talk about yourself many times. Uh, about the importance of pragmatism. Uh, right. Expand upon how you always kept pragmatism in the front of your mind in your negotiations. Well, you know, uh, when I, at times when I was up there, and even today, uh, it's easy to politically demonize pragmatism because pragmatism of necessity means compromise. Compromise is not and should never have been a dirty word. Unfortunately, it has been a dirty word sometimes in the past. And if you look at Washington today, it may be perceived to be a dirty word today. But that's how you get things done. Pragmatism is the art of the possible. Uh, you're never going to get everything. If you if you go into a negotiation thinking you got to have every everything you your starting position uh, outlines, you're not going to be successful. Pragmatism is the art of the possible. So I think it's really important when you start negotiating to realize that negotiation is a give and take. You need to understand, particularly when you're negotiating in Washington, D.C., for instance, or internationally, that, uh, that in a democracy, no one side gets to make all the rules. And therefore, you've got to be willing to give up a little to get a lot. And a lot of people uh, enter a negotiation uh, without having that uh, view, and, and they're, for the most part, never successful. Let me, uh, before I ask the next question, say something I should have said on the front end. We have uh, hundreds, over a thousand people listening. If you have a question uh, at the end of this, we'll have a few minutes. Uh, please insert it into the chat box. And uh, if we have time, we'll get to it. But I, I neglected to say that on the front end. But Secretary Baker, back, back to the world of uh, negotiation. You've talked about the importance of trustworthiness. Yeah. Uh, between people across the table. Uh, when you're in that situation, what are the things that you do to try to build trust uh, in the rapport you have with the person across the table? 
Well, the, the one thing you have to be very careful about, particularly in international negotiations, is to make sure that your word is good and that your interlocutor never has occasion or reason to doubt what you tell them. That means you don't say anything that's, that's not backed up by the facts. Uh, the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, in a negotiation is to get caught in a lie. Uh, then it's it's almost all over because the other guy thinks to himself, "Boy, I can't trust anything this fellow says," and and so you really got to be careful that what you say is accurate and that it's true and that you can prove it. Uh, and and you you need to also test the other guy across the table with respect to the trustworthiness of his or her statements to you. Those statements have got to be true. The, the surest way to kill a negotiation is to uh, is for one of the other of the negotiators to catch the other in a lie. Now you have uh, read uh, much of your work, of course, your books. Uh, you had a tactic that you used to uh, build this trustworthiness called parallel reciprocal confidence building. Uh, yeah. Tell our audience what that was. Well, that's nothing more than uh, nothing more than understanding that to get to the end game, sometimes, normally, not just sometimes, normally, uh, a negotiation is a series of discrete, small step negotiations. And if you can find a way to uh, approach your interlocutor uh, so that you, you you build on the idea that, look, if you're willing to do X, I'm willing to do Y. Those are not the end game uh, objectives. Those are not the end objectives. But there's steps along the way that can be uh, taken that will build trust, it will build confidence, and it will lead you toward uh, the desired result. You have to always remain flexible. I mean, flexibility is really important. Flexibility is important, as you know, in the practice of law. It's important in politics, and it's certainly important in negotiation. Now, as you know, uh, this conference that uh, Baylor Law School put together this year, uh, most, many people in our audience are legal educators who aspire to plant seeds of leadership uh, in their students at their respective law students. Now, you've mentored many young people throughout your amazing life, uh, many of whom have become leaders in their own rights. So, so what's been the, the key for you in, in planting and cultivating seeds of leadership in the young people who you've worked around? Well, first of all, you got to set a good example for them. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to teach them leadership skills. Teach them what your experience has taught you is required to become a leader. And uh, I think that's really important. You know, uh, kids, kids can learn these skills. Leadership skills are skills that can be taught. We just talked about a lot of them. And, uh, and students can learn those, but they're not going to learn them if they're not presented to them. So I think teaching leadership skills is really important. 
And there's a new book that just came out a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> there you are on the cover. It's your biography, and it's appropriately titled The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It's written by New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser, who's the staff writer for The New Yorker. And I know that you fully cooperated with Peter and Susan uh, in, the, in the research and setting up the interviews, but you did not have any editorial control over, over no. the final product. So I'm sure you've read it. What's it like to read the biography of yourself published by Doubleday and huge reviews in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times? Uh, what did you think of, of the book and its presentation of your life? Well, of course, I was uh, I was a little apprehensive because I am a conservative Republican and uh, and uh, the New Yorker and the New York Times are not necessarily conservative publications. Uh, but I determined that that there really wasn't anything uh, out there for me to hide. So I gave them everything. I gave them boxes, files of correspondence from years ago with my parents and with uh, my sib, my sister and others. And and uh, I just said, have at it, because I was not really particularly worried. Was I a little bit apprehensive about what, what conclusions they might come to? You bet I was. Are there some conclusions in the book that I would uh, tend to disagree with? You bet there are. Do I think uh, on balance that this is a, a really fair and complete, full-throated biography of my life? I do. I think it was fair. It certainly uh, covers everything. Uh, and there were some things in there that I didn't necessarily know. I disagree with some of the uh, uh, authors, or the, but some of Peter and Susan's conclusions. But... Uh, but on balance, I think it was good to just turn everything over to him and let him write a full-throated biography that had the good and the bad. It's, I tell people it's a fair biography it's, uh, with warts and all. <laughs> and there's some of the warts I might disagree with, not too many. It's a really a, a pretty darn good book, and they're, they're excellent writers. Yeah, I did a program, believe it or not, earlier this morning with David Rubenstein, who I know you worked with for many years. Yeah. And he did a program with Peter and Susan recently, and 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 he's read their book, and he says, this book is worthy of a Pulitzer. So I, I hope good things come from the book, because obviously I think it'll help to uh, build your legacy uh, for, mm -hmm. for generations uh, to come. Well, they did. A, well, let me just say that, in my opinion, they did a really, really good job, and that it was, uh, and that the warts that are that are in there, they've they've dealt with them in a fair way, and so I was uh, pleased pleased with it, uh, Talmadge. Yeah. In fact, uh, later in the chat box to our audience, uh, there's going to be links to both Amazon and uh, Penguin Random House Doubleday. Uh, so I hope uh, that many of you will make sure you, you, you get this book because it's a, a fantastic read, well-deserving of the great uh, review, positive reviews it's gotten. But, but most importantly, just to tell the life of, of our special guest, uh, Secretary Baker. Now, uh, as developed in the book, in fact, it's in the introduction, and you've said this a lot, uh, 
your perspective has always been the point of holding power is getting things done. And during your years in, in Washington, obviously, you did a great job of that. And, they, and uh, Peter and Susan say in the book that one of the reasons that you were able to achieve so many goals is because you were not a crusader. They say you had no ideological fervor, which certainly goes along with your focus on pragmatism that we discussed earlier. So do you agree that in your political and international negotiations, you had essentially no ideological fervor? Well, I don't know what you mean by ideological fervor. You know, I was chief of staff, of White House chief of staff for President Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was pretty ideological. Uh, I was his treasury secretary. Uh, and so uh, it's a question of balance, I think. Um, you, 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 the commitment to values that I mentioned earlier with James McGregor Burns' definition of leadership mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is a commitment to values, and those values are ideological, usually, for the most part. And so you, you, you have to have some ideological component in your polity and your worldview, but it's a question of balance. I think if you're overly ideological, you're going to be too strict and too uh, wedded to the ultimate. And governing and international negotiations, even for that matter, are a matter of balance. You need the ideological, you, you need to be, you, you know, I, there's, a, there's a conflict in American foreign policy, for instance, well-known, between realists and idealists. you got to have some realism in your foreign policy, but you also got to have some idealism. Now, ideological fervor, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but you better have some idealism. And our foreign policy, America's foreign policy, is built on, on, on idealistic principles. Well, I heard you last November when you spoke to the National Convention of the World Affairs Council. And, and, and of course, I've also read David Rubenstein's book uh, where he interviewed you. And, and you said, would you be able to achieve in today's politics the kinds of things that you did during your heyday in Washington from 1980 through 1992? You, the ultimate principal pragmatist, and now, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, this unbelievable political dysfunction. Uh, is there a place for somebody with your skill set and principal pragmatism uh, in today's Washington, D.C.? Well, I, I would hope that there would be. Uh, I don't know. You know, uh, nothing I accomplished could ever have been accomplished without uh, the presidents whom I served. And so today, I mean, leadership, leadership has to come from the top. And you, we need leaders. We need presidents today who want to see that old paradigm uh, reestablished, where people go to Washington to do the nation's business, not to fight and squabble and argue all the time. And by the way, we need a press that, that views that as the objective. You know, the press today, when I was there, the press were to some degree, they had their biases, 
But to some degree, they were they were objective reporters of the facts. Today, that's no longer the case. And this is a serious problem for our democracy. Our press today are players in the political debate on one side or the other. That's not good. It's not good for for uh, getting the getting the people's business done, which today is uh, less and less what's happening. Another uh, key that uh, Peter and Susan bring out in terms of your capacity to to keep getting things done, particularly during your Washington years, was that you believe that enemies don't have to be permanent. No, they don't. So what was your strategy for mending fences and transforming difficult relationships? Well, um, (laughs) I guess it was a couple of things. Number one, you got to keep your eye on the ball. What is the end? What's the objective? Okay. Uh, So on your way to trying to achieve that objective, you're going to have you're going to receive slights from people. People are going to trash you or they're going to do that. You can't let that stand in the way of the objective, which is to is to make the agreement, get get the uh, do the thing that is the nation, that is the people's business, get it accomplished. Uh, and then furthermore, and I think I think to some extent, maybe faith, my faith comes into play here. Uh, I've had a strong faith ever since I was a young man as I developed uh, at prep school. And uh, and I think uh, Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is, uh, if you want to be forgiven, you better be ready to forgive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, I think if you, particularly if you're up there in that environment, and you're trying to get things done and you're negotiating with the other side, you just, you better be like a duck. You better let all those, uh, all those slights uh, roll off your back like water. Now, during your years as Secretary of State for President Bush, America's foreign policy and, and execution of it was probably the, the greatest it's been in maybe in history uh, during those four years. Of course, the the Cold War ended. Uh, Of course, you led uh, the the reunification of Germany. Uh, Of course, the the Gulf War, the success of driving the Iraqi army out of of Kuwait. But but when you left office, having won the Cold War, having won the Gulf War, uh, having uh, brought Germany together, uh, what was your expectation for the world order going forward? post-Cold War? Well, I really thought that we would, I, I really thought we were on the cusp of, of a new paradigm. I really did. I thought because we had, as you pointed out, we not only ended the Cold War, we'd ended it peacefully. And uh, it showed that antagonists for 40 years uh, could get along and could, um, and could, uh, resolve their differences in a way that that would promote uh, freedom and prosperity and liberty for many people around the world. So we were very hopeful. One of the big disappointments, I think, in, of my life is to see the the uh, return uh, by Russia to the same types of uh, things that were going on when Russia was the Soviet Union. Uh, We made efforts to bring Russia into the West, into the organizations of the West and so forth. 
they they evidently didn't work. And so here we are now, and and, and not only Russia, here we are now in in a pretty much of a Cold War environment with China. China, of course, I was one who fought like hell to get China into the WTO because we thought that would that they would become a more responsible international player once they were admitted to these important international organizations. So to get into the WTO, they made a lot of promises, but they didn't keep those promises. And that's not that's not good. So here we are today. I think there's room today for doing the kinds of things that we did during the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration, because we're right back into the same environment. Now, of course, with this audience and the theme of this conference and with your uh, spectacular career as a lawyer before you became uh, such a success in Washington, D.C., uh, and when I uh, interviewed myself, uh, Peter and Susan, I asked him about how was it, what was it about your training as a lawyer and your years of practicing law that translated uh, readily into uh, your service in Washington uh, while you're uh, leading different parts of the government? What did they say? What did you ask them that? I asked them that, and they said yeah. your being a lawyer was absolutely key. Uh, to the way oh, you oh, went oh, about your business. I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Yeah, well, it absolutely was. And by the way, uh, I wrote a, um, a book about my four years as Secretary of State called The Politics of Diplomacy. And in there, I spent some time talking about how much I thought my experience as a lawyer helped me uh, when I got to Washington, helped me in politics, but most of all really helped me when I was Secretary of State. Because Secretary of State, you know, lawyers do a lot of negotiating. And that's where I learned whatever skills I have uh, in negotiation. But Secretary of State's job is to negotiate on behalf of his country. It's negotiation. It's not business negotiation. It's international negotiation. So being a lawyer and learning to cross the T's and dot the I's and be careful and uh, and think through things. Those are all traits I think I learned uh, because of my legal my legal training, mm-hmm. and they they helped me immeasurably in D.C. Well, uh, Peter and Susan talk about, of course, your success in working with with Congress, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, talk about uh, the ricochets in politics and and and. And that you were the master, like a pinball player, being able to play the ricochets. And as I, I thought about that, I thought about your famous five P's, mm-hmm. uh, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Uh, how did that five P's translate into being able to, dic- uh, to, to deal with uh, the political ricochets that you had to confront constantly? Well, they were even more important when you're dealing with the, uh, the politics of Washington, and particularly in those in some of the jobs I had, you know, I get asked frequently, Tommy, what do you think? What do you consider was your uh, most significant accomplishment in the twelve years you were in Washington? I said, well, the most significant accomplishment was running five president campaigns for president, being chief of staff to two different presidents, being secretary of treasury and secretary of state, and leaving Washington unindicted. 
And I think my my experience as a lawyer and my training as a lawyer really helped me in that. Peter and uh, Susan write in the book about how I kept a memo to file of every inappropriate request I was uh, I was asked for when I was chief of staff or when I was secretary of state or anything else. And, you you know, uh, I think I learned that because I was a lawyer. And remember, I came to Washington in the immediate aftermath of Watergate. So I, I saw what I saw what could happen to careless people when they go up there. That's a tough environment. And chief of staff of the White House, I tell you, I was that I was the longest serving chief of staff of the White House in history, up until uh, my successors came along. And I tell people it's the worst job in government because you you walk around with a target on your front and on your back. When people can't get to the president, they want to get to the chief of staff, and the press and the press particularly want to. So my training as a lawyer was invaluable to me in my second career uh, in politics and public service. Now, uh, in this day and time with social media everywhere, as well as uh, television, multiple cables, newspapers, everything there is, uh, the media seems to be a bigger part of our attention span than maybe they ever have been before. And Susan and Peter in the book talk about how during your time in Washington, you, quote, courted the media assiduously, always with, for the most part, with great results. So for all these uh, law school professors who who are training these future leaders, what tips can you give on how to deal with the media in order to get them on your side uh, as opposed to uh, against you? Well, the one, the number one thing I think is to realize that the most important thing when you're in, in a high level job in Washington, D.C., dealing with the media, the most important thing is to let them know you're willing to engage with them. You're willing to talk to them. I would maybe argue with courting the media assiduously that type that phrase, but I never, I made it a point never to go home at night without returning uh, every call I got that day as chief of staff now from a congressperson or a press person. Now that was in the days before texting. So I could return the call after hours and know that they wouldn't be there to answer it, but I'd get credit for returning the call. But what the press want they want you to be willing. You want to, they want transparency. They want you to be willing to talk to them and they want to be, and they want to have access uh, when you're in those powerful jobs up there. And so, so I paid attention to them and it was the right thing to do. And in, in terms of backgrounding the press, some people call that leaking. It's not leaking. Leaking is when you talk to the press to push your own, uh, interest as opposed to interests of the administration. Your job as White House Chief of Staff is to make sure that you spin the president, the administration's position uh, to as many press people as you can. That's not leaking. That's background in the press that was very important. Well, again, focusing on our, our audience here, these, these law school professors who are in front of law students and law school deans and so forth, 
who are in front of law students all the time. Uh, Secretary Baker, pretend like you're in front of a big class of law students. Of course, you were a law student many years ago at the University of Texas, and uh, and uh, obviously that training served you well in your legal career. For today's law students, uh, is, is there anything besides what you've said already that you, you think really needs to be uh, driven home that, that uh, from your experience, you realize now how incredibly important it is to get while you're young uh, before you kind of get out into the professional world? You know, I can't think of anything other than uh, what we've talked about here today. Uh, I'm a big believer in prior preparation prevents poor performance. That's my fault, my grandfather's mantra and my father. And uh, it sure served me well. I never winged it, Tomage. I would never go, you know, you know, there's a passage in the book that, that talks about when I was going to be on the Sunday shows when I was chief of staff for Reagan. And I would require the staff to come in and brief me sometimes for two hours. And, and Larry speaks, uh, the press secretary is recorded in there saying, these were, these were uh, I would bet, rather be out playing little league ball with my son than in trying to brief Baker for two hours for a meet the press appearance. But prior preparation is really, really important, particularly important, I think, in practicing law. I know it's important in trying to trying to serve in Washington in either politics or public service. And another thing I would say is that, you know, we, we I, I tell people I was fortunate enough to be Secretary of State of the United States at a time when we were omnipotent almost. I mean, it was a unipolar world. Wonderful time to be. Everybody wanted to get close to Uncle Whiskers. And I went all over the world, 91 countries during that four years. And everybody admired the United States. Everybody wanted to come to the United States. Nobody wanted to leave the United States. Guess what? With all of our troubles today, everybody admires the United States. Some people resent us, but they either admire us or resent us. They, they all want to come here. Everybody wants to come here and nobody wants to leave. So I get very tired of listening to people run down this country and talk about all of our problems. Yeah, we got some problems, but we've had big problems in the past, and I'm old enough to have lived through some of them and seen them fixed. And we can fix any problem because we are the finest, best country in the world. Pardon the patriotic speech. Oh, we love the patriotic speech. That's that's just such a magical uh, opportunity to, to hear uh, you say that. Uh, getting on this, uh, back to the, the proper preparation prevents poor performance. Uh, an important part of your rise in Washington, D.C. was when uh, Ronald Reagan asked you to, to prepare you uh, for the presidential debates. And it was that, your extraordinary preparation, that caught Nancy Reagan's attention and so here we are in this election year. We, we've had a presidential debate and vice presidential debate. Is there anything that stands out in your memory about that preparation for debating? Maybe, you know, tied into preparation for a big legal meeting or case. But, of course, Reagan is such an iconic figure. And there you are getting him to where he can surge past well, the incumbent Carter. 
Uh, you, you know, there were a lot of uh, longtime Reagan uh, people who had worked for him who were a little reluctant for him to debate. But I, I had been, and and there were some who joined me. I was, I was sort of the deputy chairman of, of the Reagan campaign in charge of debates because they, they they asked me to come over after George Bush left the race. And I've never seen, I'd never seen Reagan lose a debate. So I argued strongly for him to debate John Anderson. Carter Anderson was another Republican running for president, and Carter didn't want to didn't want to debate two Republicans. And so I said, "Well, we ought to go debate Anderson because I I felt sure that Reagan would uh, would wipe up the floor with him, which he did. Uh, but I, I wanted to put a I wanted to put an empty chair out there and put a sign on Jimmy Carter's chair, but." They wouldn't let us do that. It would have been very effective. But Reagan was a wonderful debater. Whenever the red light went on the camera, boy, he was he was good. And uh, and the only debate they had in that 1980 campaign was one debate. And he just destroyed Jimmy Carter in that debate. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, did something that I don't think will ever be done in uh, American politics again. He asked somebody, me, who had run two campaigns against him to be his White House chief of staff. Everybody was shocked. Nobody was more shocked than I was. But what a beautiful human being I was privileged to serve for four years. Getting back to your uh, magnificent statement of patriotism, uh, for my final question for this program, Secretary Baker, uh, and I've interspersed some questions from our audience in the last few, just so you'll know that many of these came from the audience. But uh, somebody said, uh, if James Baker uh, sat down with his uh, grandchildren today, uh, would you recommend a career in uh, public service and or uh, politics? Absolutely, without any question. And, and remember this, and, and for your students out there, Politics can be a grubby business. Politics ain't beanbag. And I've got the scars to show for it. But politics is the way under our democratic system that you get the right to practice policy. As Lyndon Johnson once said, said uh, you can't be a statesman until you've been elected. And it's true. Politics is the way we get to practice policy. And even if your politics, politics is not successful, you are giving back to your country when you participate in politics. It's our system. It's not, it's very imperfect, but it's better than most other systems, better than all other systems. So I would encourage all of your students to to be find a way to participate in politics. If you want to just go straight to public service, you can do that. Go take the foreign service exam and, and go into one of the nation's international uh, policy agencies. But there are ways to there are ways to to get to do the George Bush used to say the way to get into politics is to go out and do something else first successfully which is what he did, it's, which is what I did. I happened to, mine was a, a being a lawyer. 
But uh, whatever you do, remember, this is the finest country in the world, and it's incumbent upon each of us to give something back. The way you give it back is to participate in politics and or public service. Secretary Baker, we can't thank you enough. Uh, this is something we're all going to remember for a long time. And uh, thank you for your incredible years of service. Thank you for running Washington at a time when things ran and trains stayed on the tra track and, and the things actually got done. So I hope the rest of your day goes well. And you've been a, a, an important and key part of this conference on the lawyer as leader. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy. James Baker is one of my personal heroes. I've now had the honor of interviewing him four times at his law office for my book, Raising the Bar, in which in chapter two, I explain why I regard him and Leon Jaworski as the two most important lawyers of the last 50 years, at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University for my book, Cross-Examining History, at the George W. Bush Presidential Library, where he reminisced about his 60-year friendship with President George H.W. Bush, and in the interview you just heard with a symposium organized by Baylor Law School. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. You can also find them on my website, talmadgeboston.com. Until next time, remember, as my late friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.